Hello and welcome to the Names Not Numbers podcast. This episode features Duncan Clark, founder and chairman of BDA China. Recorded at the Welcome Collection on the 20th of June 2016, he discusses Jack Ma, the richest man in China and founder of e-commerce company Alibaba. For further information on speakers and events, please visit namesnotnumbers.com. Thanks very much, Ed. Alibaba is not very uh, Chinese as a name, but this is indeed a talk about China, and I will explain. Uh, my name is Duncan Clark. That is not my photo, but uh, that is the subject of the book that I've uh, recently uh, uh, written, which came out with HarperCollins uh, a few months ago. Um, I've been based in China for 22 years. I left uh, initially London for Hong Kong, uh, and then Hong Kong for Beijing, thinking I would stay for a year. I'd stay, stayed for 22. So China has a magnetic appeal. This is, by the way, this is a complete screen wipe from genocide. This is probably genesis of a new society, a, cons- a consumerist society. In, in this case, we'll be talking about but the emergence of a, of a digital powerhouse in China, <clears throat> which increasingly is having um, ramifications beyond uh, its borders. Um, so Alibaba is an unusual name for uh, a uh, Chinese company, and Jack Ma, who's featured here, is an unusual uh, corporate titan. One, because he's not very big, and we assume that they're all going to be uh, a big and sort of, frankly, you know, traditionally all the big corporate tech titans have been Caucasian Americans, <laughs> males. Actually, one-third of the co-founders of Alibaba uh, are women. There are 18 co-founders of the company. Um, and this is now a, a very large uh, company in, in China, but also globally. It had the largest uh, initial public offering uh, in the world a few years ago. But we're going to talk a little bit about the impact um, uh, of this company on China and beyond, but also what does it tell us about the sort of global um, distribution of power, if you will, um, and innovation particularly. Um, what Jack did was do something impossible, which was to bring together uh, three things, uh, e-commerce, logistics, and finance. So in China, when I first experienced, when I moved there um, 22 years ago, it was very difficult to actually buy anything. Everything was made in China, but it was very difficult to actually buy it there. <laughs> um, and one of the, if you would go to state-owned uh, shops, um, if you did see something you'd like, you'd have to you know, deal with some pretty bullshit kind of uh, assistance to actually get the thing and pay for it. So bringing together e-commerce, um, finance and logistics. So uh, in China today, there's something called Alipay, which is uh, five times the size of PayPal. Everybody in their, in their mobile phone today can, uh, we could order lunch right now here, and I know I'm standing between you and lunch, but lunch could be here in five minutes if we were in China. So, and you could pay for it with your mobile phone. So both the delivery and the payment is very critical. And this is, in the book I call it the architecture of trust. So in China, many people had you know, traditionally trusted within the family, and then, of course, uh, within state, in the state-run economy, it was sort of you would work, to trust people in your work unit. But that's all broken down now, and, and increasingly, Chinese have to trade with each other. And, and it's a very low-trust society. The rarest commodity in China, other than fresh air, in places like Beijing, is uh, is trust. And so this this explains why this company that has emerged in China has uh, such huge scale, eighty percent of the. Uh, Chinese uh, e-commerce market. And to give you a sense of that, in the logistics uh, aspect of this, 60% of all postal deliveries in China are for this company. Um, And this book is essentially also very much zooming in on a province called Zhejiang, Zhejiang province, which is uh, just to the south of Shanghai. Um, I would venture that the the things that we're sitting on right now, the chairs, these lights, definitely, um, (laughs) tables, were either made or traded in, in Zhejiang province. So China today is 
you know, the made-in-China model, but what Alibaba is looking at is, is moving it to the consumed-in-China model and perhaps even the designed-in-China model. Um, and within the, city, within the province of Zhejiang, there are cities that we know, like Hangzhou, where Jack Ma is from, um, but there are also cities like um, Wenzhou and Yiwu that you may not have heard so much about. But these are integral to globalization. You know, the previous speaker was saying that there's some you know, friction emerging from globalization, but you know, China's been a big beneficiary, actually. Um, and not surprisingly, actually, China wants Britain to remain in the EU. <laughs> um, but um, you know, in this, everything is made in China, as I mentioned. Uh, a lot of it is made in, in Zhejiang. So, for example, um, there's a sock city in Zhejiang, um, where something like 90% of the world's socks are made. There's actually another sock city uh, in the neighboring province. I think one makes left socks and the other right socks. But uh, uh, ties are made there, your motor scooters. Um, and actually, there's one town, Tonglu, where three of the four largest logistics or courier, com courier companies in China are located. And the founders are also related to each other. So imagine if DHL, FedEx, and sort of UPS were all located in the same town. Well, that, that's actually happening in China. Um, Wenzhou is a city where the money is made, uh, dodgy, dodgy money, dodgy lending, um, or, or financial innovation, depending on your perspective. Um, this is having global implications. So Wenzhou, the, the citizens of Wenzhou have become so wealthy um, that uh, they may be pushing up property prices in, in your area too, or certainly your children may be competing with their children to get into schools because there's been so much money made in, in this province. Um, by the private sector. So this, this book is really the story, and China today is really the story of the private sector, the entrepreneurs. We, we tend to still see China through the lens of the Cultural Revolution, of course, and we, we're just um, going through the anniversary of that at the moment. Um, uh, the Great Leap Forward, um, which came before. Um, Xi Jinping, of course, dominating sort of the headlines. But the hidden story really is about the rise of entrepreneurs and increasing their, their global, global reach. Um, and Actually, toothbrushes, 98% uh, of the world's toothbrushes are made in, uh, in Zhejiang. Uh, and so probably the first thing you used this morning, uh, I hope, was a toothbrush. I pretty much guarantee you that it's made in Zhejiang. But this is a story of well, I actually met Jack Ma when he founded the company um, in 1999 in a small apartment in Hangzhou. And, uh, in fact, I remember meeting him because uh, when I was using the, the, the restroom, there, the bathroom, there was uh, two mugs stuffed with 20 uh, toothbrushes. This was the co-founders of the company, as I mentioned, six, six women, um, and the rest uh, male, mostly um, um, engaged in technology or trade. Um, but you could tell that they were working around the clock because they actually uh, um, they lived and, and worked in this apartment, basically in shifts. And, um, and actually, the toothbrush... Um, symbolized something else, that in 1984, in Wenzhou, that city I mentioned earlier on the coast, um, the Wenzhou government had brought in people who were invo involved in trade or private sector activities. And uh, all the uh, entrepreneurs who were summoned in um, actually carried with them toothbrushes because they were worried they would be arrested. Because the previous year, 1983, um, every speculator that had been called in had been arrested. And in Chinese prison, they don't give you toothbrushes. So it's always a good idea to carry your toothbrush. But in 1984, uh, the policy had changed, and China had begun at a very early stage in this province to start to encourage private sector activities. And we all know about Deng Xiaoping, who made his famous southern tour in the early 90s, but that was a full you know, decade after that. And so entrepreneurs in China take huge amounts of risk. And one of the stories of this book, Alibaba, is um, the risk that an individual can take on taking on, effectively, the state 
but the risks are much less uh, than, uh, um, you know, even 20 years ago. And the story is an unusual story as well, because had I pitched the story as uh, fiction, I don't think I would have got a publisher. But there actually was a strange incident. Uh, this gentleman on the right is called David Morley. He's a, uh, Australian. In the picture, 12 years old. He's my age, so he's 47. This is in 1980, and foreign tourists had started to come to Hangzhou uh, the previous year, because as you know, Deng Xiaoping had started opening China to the world. They actually needed foreign currency badly. Um, and so tourism, maybe this will happen after Brexit, I don't know. But tourism will become the major thing to sort of get foreign currency in. Um, but here, Jack Ma, shown at um, uh, 15 years old, uh, was walking up to tourists on the streets of Hangzhou and just saying, I would like to be your tour guide. I, you know, uh, he's, he's learned English from the World Service, from VOA, and reading books. And he had no fear. So in terms of being a bold person, um, Jack is, is right up there. I mean, he basically um, volunteered his services to all the tourists who would come. He would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, ride his bike to what was then the Hangzhou Hotel, today the Shangri-La Hotel. In this case, he approached this young Australian boy, and his family ended up becoming friends with Jack. Um, the irony of the story is that um, the father of this boy, David Morley, is a guy called Ken Morley. He uh, was a committed socialist in Australia. He and his wife, who was a member of the Australian Communist Party, had taken their children to Australia, uh, to, excuse me, to China to show them a worker's paradise. Ended up, fast forwarding, that the family ended up supporting Jack, um, lending him money effectively, helping buy an apartment, which gave him the ability to take risks, to sort of step away from the state system. And Jack is now the richest man in Asia. He's worth about $65 billion at the last count. So Ken Morley, the committed socialist, he got to see, uh, unfortunately before his, his death, he got to see the growth of this uh, huge empire and, and, and sort of reflected, yeah, I kind of uh, made that happen. Anyway, so I, this story hadn't been told. I tracked down David Morley. He runs a yoga studio in New South Wales. Um, very, you know, good. If you're ever in, in, uh, in New South Wales, then, you know, you know where to go for yoga. Very modest guy. Anyway, he kindly shared my story. So there's an element of luck in success and entrepreneurship. Um, um, and uh, also, uh, after Jack had failed twice um, in his first venture and his second venture, um, he was sent as a tour guide to, uh, to the Great Wall by his employer, the Ministry of Commerce. He'd gone back to work for the government. He'd basically given up. And one day, they said, you've got to take this American guy to the wall. His name is Jerry Yang. Um, now, Jack and his wife, Kathy, here, who's also a co-founder of Alibaba, became good friends with Jerry Yang. Um, I actually met Jerry Yang on this trip. Um, I didn't become quite as good friends as Jack did because Jerry Yang invested a billion dollars in Alibaba just uh, seven years after this picture. And today, the fortunes of Yahoo are really transformed by this chance meeting, effectively, with, with Jack Ma. But Jerry Yang, like many others, including the 17 co-founders of Alibaba, had seen in Jack a very charismatic individual in relation to the previous uh, speaker, I mean, I actually once remember telling Jack after he came off stage, you know, leaving, you know, 500 people sort of crying in, in the audience from his, his laugh. His, he's a stand-up comedian. But I said, you know, use your gifts for good, not evil. I mean, I think sort of um, he is an incredibly charismatic individual who's been able to uh, inspire people to work for him, invest in him, and create uh, this, this massive uh, business empire. Um, but... Um, Here's a sign. It's a sort of a happy, clappy kind of... This was a scene that I uh, sort of witnessed when, in, in, back in 1999 and people working around the clock. Some of these people had been translators. Some of them had just graduated. Uh, they had some technical skills. The irony of all the stories, we think of our Chinese students as being very good at maths and very scientific. Jack was terrible at that, is terrible. I mean, he got one out of 120 in maths on the Gaokao, which is the national exam. I mean, that's... 
I think you get one just for signing your name, I think. But, uh, so this sort of unlikely story, but it's an interesting one. I think this afternoon we were talking about um, sort of human technology and so on. I mean, um, you know, he, because he doesn't understand technology, he's always had to build uh, around him people who do. And he's always the last person, actually, to use anything before it's launched on their websites. I should explain a little bit what Alibaba is. But if in, in China, if you want to buy anything, um, you go onto a website called Taobao. Um, and if you want to sell anything on China, 9 to 10 million people now actually sell things on that website. You can do so, and it's free of charge So for the vendor. So you can set up a shop and sell everything. They generate money from advertising, but it's created this massive um, platform. Um, but this sort of infectious optimism that he built here is now extended to the customers that he served. Now, by the way, some of the things he sells or are sold on Taobao are fake, uh, and that's a source of some contention. Um, rather strangely, um, companies like Louis Vuitton, uh, well, actually uh, Yves Saint Laurent and others are suing Alibaba for the fakes that are sold on his website. But Jack, uh, two three weeks ago, was given the Légion d'honneur by the French government. <laughs> Uh, similar things happen in the U.S. Big American brands, some of them are, are working with Alibaba, others are not. Um, Jack Ma was uh, disinvited from an anti-piracy conference in Florida a few weeks ago, um, but it was also invited to lunch by President Obama. Um, so you have this strange, you know, he has this infectious kind of charisma, but um, the company that he's, done is so, he's built is so disruptive. Um, like platforms around the world, internet platforms we know uh, today, the power, for example, of Facebook and media, um, is something we're all just beginning to, to kind of take a step back at and look at. Anyway, so um, Alibaba is coming to America. They're um, extending up the West Coast. I like to take these uh, slides to America and tell people where they live in Guigu, which is uh, Silicon Valley. And if you go to some of these places now, a uh, large amount of Chinese investment is coming in into technology, into real estate, as I mentioned, uh, now into Hollywood. So this year, you will, if you go to see Star Trek, you will see with the first two minutes two seconds, you'll see the Alibaba Pictures logo flash up. Jack wants to bring Hollywood-style um, stories um, to China. Somebody who inspired him most in his life, um, and I, I kid you not, is Forrest Gump. He was actually, uh, Jack was asked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange after they'd raised $25 billion, the biggest ever IPO, who most in your life has inspired you? He said Forrest Gump, and CNBC said, you know he's it's actually not a, a real person, but it, it seemed as something as news to Jack. Um, but he is bringing... Uh, he says that actually it's true that if you watch most Chinese movies, when you leave the cinema, you've sort of been bawling and, and you know, it's very sad. All the heroes die. He wants to have American-style themes for China. And, and by the way, you know, of course, increasingly, this is going to be bumping into the state and the state's agenda. Um, but you do see Jack with... Uh, some other people, I don't know who they are, but um, he's often featured now, um, you know, um, meeting heads of state and CEOs. This gentleman, uh, Xi Jinping, of course, the, the big debate today is about, you know, what is the future of China and its impact? I mean, to some extent, we, we see a lot more of the, the gentleman on the right, Xi Jinping, pictured here in 2007 visiting Alibaba when Xi Jinping was uh, party secretary in Shanghai, um, neighboring uh, Hangzhou, where Alibaba is based. Um, but, you know, there's a weird tension today. Um, I mean, the book describes how Jack became an icon in China by taking on companies like eBay, getting Yahoo to invest, and becoming one of the global tech leaders. That's sort of an East versus, versus West story, the rise of Asia, the rise of China. But um, there's also a North-South element to this within China. Um, and what is the future of private sector individuals, and is there space going to be given to them by the state? Because this is very much going to determine our interaction in the world to China. Are we going to be dealing more 
with sort of the government-led sort of flavor of, uh, of companies of the past, or increasingly are we dealing, are we already seeing the tens of millions of Chinese tourists, increasingly entrepreneurs coming? And so I think it's, it's a really interesting um, dynamic today in China between uh, how much of sort of a negotiated transfer of power is there going to be? And it's not just in e-commerce, but from the, the state to the private sector. Alibaba, as I mentioned, is investing heavily in um, the media and entertainment business, but also in finance. Uh, Chinese banks, actually, they're the biggest in the world. The banks you've never heard of, but you probably see if you're in the city, the ICBC or the Bank of China. Uh, but they're all state-owned. They all have, basically, Chinese depositors have no choice but to put their money with them. Uh, but the innovation, um, which started in places like Wenzhou, as I mentioned, is now happening from companies like Alibaba. So they're actually paying um, much higher rates of interest to Chinese depositors. And, but interestingly, all these Chinese state banks, they fund the activities of these Chinese state-owned companies, um, ultimately sort of distorting the economy. So having private sector players engaged in lending is going to be a key part of the restructuring of the Chinese economy. But it means some painful painful adjustment for these state companies. So, you know, it's a very interesting place to visit China in terms of what's next. It's a place that you can never sort of feel like leaving, in my case, because um, you don't actually uh, want to miss the ending. Um, but um, anyway, I, I, we have time to have some questions, and because China's a big topic, but I'd like to delve into this individual or this company um, and maybe relate to any other questions that have emerged from this morning. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the, book, the book is coming out in Ukrainian as well because the, the, these websites are quite big. Uh, AliExpress in the 13 languages is coming out, but you will see this in other countries. But yes, your question. <laughs> uh, Nico McDonald, um, 30, 40 years ago when people discussed the rise of Japan, which was discussed in somewhat similar terms, they talked about the Japanese being very good at making things but not creative, very derivative yeah. and so on. And those accusations of them leveled against Chinese companies and so on. Uh, and Britain sees itself as being a leader in creative industries, design, and so on, and that it can be the sort of creative, you know, Athens to the Chinese Rome, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, what's your experience of China's ability to adopt thinking about creativity, design, innovation, with respect to the kind of things that it manufactures, such that it could be a company, you know, like Huawei is becoming, which is leading rather than just being an OEM or a a manufacturer of Western ideas, so to speak. Exactly right. In fact, Jack, controversially, last week was asked about the problem of fakes and you know, this ongoing issue about you know, people trading fakers in his platforms. And he actually said, you know, a lot of the fakes in China are better than the real thing, which wasn't a very uh, politically correct thing to say. But um, it's actually true in the sense that, as you said, these OEM factories now, uh, there are now abilities for individuals to contact factories directly. This is what this is all about, connecting the productive power of China with increasingly the consumers in China, but also around the world. Um, and that's actually quite disruptive to you know, the larger luxury brands for, who've built these businesses uh, with you know, massive, insane margins. I think there was a Birkin bag last week which sold for $150,000. I mean, let's get real. I mean, so... Um, but, you know, of course, investing in brands is, is very important for nurturing identities. So there's a bit of a culture clash going on. Alibaba, by the way, is trying to prove that it can support those brands by helping them sell into the Chinese consumer classes. And increasingly, the important thing is that Chinese consumers don't want to buy fakes. It's actually the Westerners who often uh, buy the fakes. When you go to Beijing and Shanghai, your friends are like, where can I get a dodgy bag? The other way around is quite interesting, too. Uh, Christine Lagarde um, I, 
heard this from George Osborne, who was visiting Beijing, uh, said that Christine Lagarde was walking down the Champs-Élysées in, in Paris, and a Chinese woman approached her and said, could you come with me to the Louis Vuitton shop? I'll give you 500 euros. Because there are actually, there are actually limits on how many real products that Chinese tourists can buy. And to her credit, Christine Lagarde said yes, and she got her 500 euros for doing that. So what so Chinese are looking for authentic products um, because they want to stand apart. So there, is still, there are still people who want cheap things. I'm half Scottish. I know all about that. Um, but there are people who want the real deal. And so China is part of the problem, clearly, but it has to also be part of the solution in terms of things like intellectual property, but also in terms of creativity. And you mentioned... I mean, I've, I was chairman of the British Chamber of Commerce in China. We had a lot of quite small companies that became quite big in China, um, or you know, architects, designers. Uh, we've had famous examples like Thomas Heatherwick, who's somebody whose work I, I really admire, building the British Pavilion at Expo, and um, Zaha Hadid, who unfortunately just passed away, a very large footprint of buildings there, much more than here. I don't think there's anything here. <laughs> but, uh, so there is this interesting relationship between Britain and China in this, but more broadly, this quest for innovation, um, the hunger for innovation and authenticity. And, you know, interestingly, Jack's story, by tr failing uh, only on the third attempt did he get into a university, and not a very good one, uh, was basically outside the system. His, he had a love of Chinese traditional martial arts and listening to the world service. And he basically educated himself. His parents were storytellers outside the system. If you follow tennis, Lina, you know, she dropped out of the Chinese system, became successful outside the system. So increasingly, Chinese parents are saying, well, why are we not innovative? This is, of course, what's called the, the Needham problem, that, you know, from the 16th century, China, after having gunpowder and paper and so on, just suddenly stopped innovating. And it's very interesting, Xi Jinping and others are saying, we're going to make China a great nation again. Oh, sounds familiar. Um, and an innovative nation. But increasingly, I think it's going to be through the private sector for the entrepreneurs that this is going to emerge. Um, but yeah, um, Jack himself is, is saying, you know, this isn't going to happen overnight. I mean, innovation happens, and I taught at Stanford University about this topic. Uh, real innovation it doesn't happen very often. I mean, we're talking about disruptive innovation. And often what we're seeing in China is, frankly, a combination of uh, incremental innovation or business model innovation in new ways. Radical innovation only really happens when you have stagnation because you need a breakthrough. Um, and China has been growing so much. Interestingly now, China is beginning to slow. And maybe this is the opportunity for more, more innovation to occur. So uh, keep your eyes on it. Yeah. Thanks. One more down here, and then we're going to break for lunch. Chinese food. I don't know what the food is. but <laughs> um, Just on the theme of our fear of the other. Yes. Um, in relation to China and yep. the power of China, the might of China, I don't know if anyone goes to Venice and sees how Chinese have taken over so much of that lovely city. And here are power infrastructure, nuclear power plants, yes. transport, you know, are you know, going to be owned probably by the Chinese. How much would you think we should fear that shift of real ownership and taking over of you know, what we have in, in That's our countries? a great countries? question. I mean, to be honest, it, it depends on how the movie ends, right? We don't know whether we are seeing a China that will, you know, frankly evolve politically in the same way that, you know, we've had this massive economic growth, we've had this, you know, emergence of this uh, global power. But un unexpectedly, so far, we haven't seen the, supposed, you know, the adjustment that's supposed to happen, that you, you know, when you hit this sort of certain level of GDP per capita, increasing middle-class consumers who are demanding better clothes and better toothpaste and toothbrushes, they also want better choice than alive of education. These things are happening, but we haven't seen the top-down change in terms of democracy. Um, and so we don't really know. Um, and the question is, by engaging, do we assist that? 
or do we make it work? This is what it boils down to. Um, I can say one thing, you know, the glass might be half empty or it might be uh, half full, but the glass is made in China. So you need to engage with China. I think ignorance is no longer acceptable. If you, if you, and you, you could make a very um, potent case for why we should not engage with China, we should resist. We see a lot of issues in South China Sea and East China Sea and so on. But you need to know what you're talking about. Increasingly, I think we need to pick our battles and need to engage to understand. And Chinese understand the West, I think, a lot more, actually, than the other way around. And partly that's because of the filter of state media. You know, China said, you probably have it on cable channel 197, but you've never watched it. Uh, interestingly, maybe the role of entrepreneurs and private sector people getting involved in media, more tourism, more people-to-people contact. We have 600,000 Chinese alumni now back in the UK. Uh, sorry, Chinese who've studied in the UK back in in China. Uh, So right now we have 180,000 Chinese. So I think the opportunity for greater engagement is there. Um, But this is the big question. Can Xi Jinping and the Communist Party not uh, flip the switch uh, and and achieve their goals? Uh, But you're right. I think we need to constantly be asking that question. Thank you very much. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you. Brilliant.